Good morning, afternoon or evening everyone. My name is Jack Baker and welcome to the third episode of The Plight of the Pangolin. Last time we met Dr Morgan Hotflash, who explained the value of the pangolin, both economic and ecologically speaking. On today's show, we're going to be talking to Kelsey Prediger. She is a researcher currently working in Namibia to reveal new and exciting information about the Temex ground pangolin. We will therefore be talking to her about her day-to-day, as well as about the major threats facing the pangolin, both on the ground and around the world. We've touched on some of these ideas already in our interviews with Morgan and Jamie, as we've discussed topics like trafficking and the cultural use of pangolin. But in this episode, we really will dive a little bit deeper into exactly what effects those have on the species and what can be done to prevent them. With that being said, no one can explain what we're going to be talking about today better than Kelsey. So let's jump right in to today's interview. Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. I am now joined by Kelsey Prediger. Kelsey is now working in Namibia, conducting field research on pangolin, and so she has kindly agreed to join us today to talk a little bit about her work in this area. So first of all, welcome to the show, Kelsey. Thank you very much for being here. I was wondering if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you found yourself where you are now in in Namibia. Okay, well, it's a pretty long story, but I'll try and make it short. So I studied zoology and environmental biology for my undergrad, and then I was pursuing large carnivores. So I was working with big cats in many different settings. Um, I've worked in zoo husbandry, education, outreach. I've also worked at numerous sanctuaries and conservation centers. And um, I always wanted to come to Africa to do conservation where it happens on the ground. And I came here actually working with big cats. And then I came here to do my graduate studies and I wasn't getting to do what I wanted. Um, I wasn't getting the time with the job that I had. And so I started looking for more opportunities. And as I traveled Namibia, I kept coming across the pangolin and the fact that nobody is doing anything. So I thought actually, even if I just finished my graduate studies and and, and leave Namibia, that thesis would be so valuable for the species. Um, so I decided I would switch to pangolin because nobody in Namibia was doing any active research. So very quickly, I was able to kind of become an expert here after dedicating the last few years to researching them. So I've spent, you know, day and night tracking them, observing them, seeing some amazing things that some people, most people never get to see. Uh, so it's been quite an amazing experience, and I'm still wrapping up uh, my thesis, and I was working for the AfriCat Foundation, but due to COVID was retrenched. Now I am um, the Secretariat of the Namibian Pangolin Working Group, as well as a research associate uh, for NUST. So exactly the right person to be talking to, because <laughs> that's in- an incredible background. Jumping from big cats to pangolin, was there a challenge kind of switching from something that's very well known to something that there's really not a lot of research on at all? I think that's part of what made it so interesting and exciting was to be learning new things and seeing new things. And it is very challenging. 
some days I do get frustrated, but it actually makes it very rewarding to overcome these obstacles. Um, I have to say, I, for a brief period, did some work with birds, and that was like a foreign language to me. Um, but pangolin are still a mammal, and they're actually more closely related to carnivores than other ant-eating species. So that shift wasn't too hard because I'm used to mammal behavior. So it actually flowed quite well. Interesting. I guess leading on from that a little bit that I, I wanted to, to talk to you about is that while they may be similar to other mammals, because there is not a lot of, of research out there, what kind of your day-to-day, if you were kind of going out working, what would your, your day kind of look like for someone out in the field? Well, um, as I said, a lot of things have changed because of COVID. So my role is shifting a bit. But on my average, you know, fieldwork days, when I was doing full-time fieldwork, I had a very weird schedule because pangolin are predominantly nocturnal. It's only in the winter months that they start to come out in the daytime hours. Their behavior or, you know, foraging periods are mostly based on temperature not so much you know the time of day the scales don't keep them warm so like in the summer months i could be going out at 2 a.m and coming back at 7 Mm a.m and like i said my field work and everything has kind of shifted quite a bit um, as technology has gotten better or we've developed better methods and things like that because as you said not much research has been done so it started with basically tracking maybe eight hours a day and I was also writing when I wasn't out, so I was not sleeping very much. But um, it's not, I have a much better balance now. But basically, um, yeah, it depends on the season. But I could go out for anywhere from four to eight hours. And in the beginning, I would find every individual every day. And I would find them with a VHF telemetry. So I have to mark their location. I take the behavior. I look at what type of habitat they're in, and I would usually follow them for a while to see what they were doing. And now I have GPS tags, and as I've slowly kind of ticked off certain research priorities, I have been able to kind of, the field work has to change a bit, because in the beginning it was as many locations as we can get, as much GPS data to start mapping home ranges. Now I have GPS tags, I don't have to focus so much on finding them every day, but I do more focused follows to see what types of species they're eating, what do what are what are their behaviors, what are they doing, and we've actually been having quite success if we follow an individual for a long time, we often will find another pangolin not in the same night but over a period of time because they are territorial like leopards, so the males will come together to fight and each male has maybe about 5 or so females in his home range. And so he'll visit those females. So very often I've been tracking a pangolin and then I hear another one nearby and then we're actually able to immediately tag that pangolin. Um, So that's kind of some of the, the the majority of my field work has been just finding them tracking. Mm -hmm. Literally every day I have tracking hours and then the field work that I can fit in around that just depends on how successful my tracking is. So I do have some camera traps Um, But it hasn't been a main focus as they don't trigger camera traps very often. So that data is always a bit limited. Um, But mostly what I do is just following them, going out, finding them, following them, seeing what they're doing, what they're eating. And uh, yeah, 
I have a, a huge set of objectives. So basically that kind of encompasses most of the most important things. Like for my thesis, the data collection is pretty much done and that was mapping home ranges and looking at what prey species they prefer as well as uh, what types of burrows. So that was kind of the main focus. And now we're kind of shifting into some other things. Interesting. That must be exceptionally challenging, I guess. But it's, knowing that they come together must have been an incredibly valuable thing to, to find, especially I was talking to, to Dr. Morgan Hotflash, and he was talking about how in his life, I think he said he'd encountered pangolin twice. And so the fact that you're going out and finding one that's then leading you to another and then kind of helping you make all of these connections within a home range is, is very interesting and kind of unique. I suppose you kind of touched on some of the challenges you've faced. Would you say the biggest challenge is initially kind of finding them and, and tracking them and that sort of thing? Or is there further challenges down the line, I guess, with trying to, I don't know, make people listen to what you're saying if they're kind of this unknown species or is it something... In, the main challenge is more the practical side. Well, you know, the ch I mean, I'm facing huge challenges now. Um, we have constant tag failures. When we first started tagging, about 50% of the tags fell off. And then we kind of came up with a new prototype that we designed ourselves. Like we got the tags and then we modified them how we liked. Mm -hmm. And I had about a solid year without any tags falling off. And I can't talk about numbers, but I've had a huge number disappear now, and it could be anything from, I've relocated some, some of them, the tag breaks off again, because we switched to a new type of tag that came as we wanted it, and so we thought, oh, it's great, and then come to find out it's a different antenna material, and the um, resin they used to set it was too brittle that, uh, that, that it was breaking, so I've had, since March, I can't talk about the numbers, but I've had a huge problem with tag failures and I've had antennas being shredded. I've had antennas being kinked. I've had antennas breaking off and all of these things can change the frequency and they can also change the range. So shredded antenna made the signal go weaker and on mortality, which is a constant beep. Mortality signal happens when the pangolin hasn't been active for 12 hours. But this pangolin was actually forging in the road in front of me, and it was giving me a mortality signal because of a shredded antenna. Mm -hmm. um, but the worst case is when the antenna breaks, the range can go from one to two kilometers to less than 100 meters. And we're covering a huge area. This reserve is 22,000 hectares. And so they're not roads within 100 meters of these individuals. Sometimes I have to hike one to two kilometers. So, you know, then they go missing for extended periods of time. And I've also had antennas get kinked and then the frequency shifts. So when I'm looking for it, I actually don't hear it. And I have to play with the frequency up and down every time just to check that it didn't shift. Um, so we have all kinds of challenges with that. Mm -hmm. um, it's a constant thing. It's going to happen. There's nothing you can do. They are really hard on their tags. So we have to do monthly tag checks to keep up on the maintenance to make sure that we're not losing them. And, you know, another challenge are the predators. So very often, you know, oh, I've really got to get something done. And then there's a leopard in the area that is not leaving. And so then we've got to abandon that tracking. And it's unfortunate because sometimes it could have been some really interesting data, but we just have to move on. But to identify pangolin and tag them is a huge mission. It's, you know, taken me years 
to tag the number that I've tagged and it takes long nights, dedication. I'm basically on call 24 seven because of this reserve having such tourism in normal times. A lot of the tagging also comes from guide sightings. So I literally would be sitting down for dinner and I get a call or I could be actually doing a number of things and I get a call and I literally have everything ready to go to jump in my car and and be there in like 20 minutes or less. I guess that's the kind of when you're dealing with something that is so hard to find if you if you know that there are somewhere you've got to take the opportunity when it when it comes up. Those are some of the kind of practical challenges. I wondered if you had encountered any when it came to perhaps research funding or kind of trying to get people to if you're dealing with kind of local communities, kind of the human challenges surrounded with your work? Well, I haven't uh, worked closely with communities yet, but it is a longer term goal of mine um, to do more outreach. Generally speaking, most people don't know what a pangolin is, and the few that do, they know almost absolutely nothing. Raising awareness is really important because so many people think, oh, look at this, I, I can't tell you, every time someone has seen a pangolin, they almost always tell me they've picked it up, moved it somewhere, done something with it because it has no defense. It doesn't run away. It just curls up. And so, you know, it's very hard for some of these people to actually understand the impact that can have on the pangolin stress-wise because they can't attack. They have nothing to do that shows people that they're stressed other than rolling up. And people think that, oh, then it's okay. Um, So I've heard many stories, unfortunately, of pangolin being taken like out of their home range and taken into a rescue Mm. because it's near a road or something when actually, in fact, it's quite normal, you know, roads intersect wildlife habitat. So they just cross over here and there and it's quite normal, but people will still take them out of that. And it's actually could be lethal to do something like that. But as far as um, finding funding goes, I have thankfully had a lot of support from the University of St. Andrews. Now, in these current times, a lot of grants that I would apply for and maybe previously have gotten are not sure that they'll offer it this year because of COVID-19. A lot of uh, zoos provide in-situ funding, which helps projects like mine. And a lot of them are, you know, faced with They also don't have any income now that they haven't had any visitors. So now there is no funding for these grants. In general, I've also been faced with a lot of people say that Namibia is not a priority country and, you know, they're not interested in funding research in Namibia for whatever reason. So there's there's definitely a lot of challenges that come with it. But having it having the pangolin be such a traffic species, there's a lot more opportunities for funding than with other species, which is, you know, a blessing and a curse. It's terrible because of the trafficking, but it's a good thing that, you know, without the trafficking, most organizations wouldn't care as much. Oh, we don't know much about the pangolin, you know, oh, it's it's not a big deal. But we're actually able to do some amazing research because of that focus on pangolin. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting link there and kind of leads very nicely onto something else I kind of wanted to to ask you about, because I think you kind of talked a little bit about the challenges of COVID um, and kind of the funding issues there. But trafficking, I guess, and some of the other issues facing Pangolin don't go away just because of the kind of COVID situation. So I think it's important we don't lose focus on 
those other issues. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of those issues, um, maybe starting with trafficking. Because they are the kind of most trafficked mammal, I think, in the world, the 2020 UN Wildlife Crime Report confirmed that again this year that was the, the case. I wondered, working in Namibia, how have you kind of come into contact with the kind of world of trafficking? Is it something that you've had to deal with? Um, well, just as a general, you know, researcher, hmm. not necessarily. But I have come into contact in the terms of, uh, you know, there are so many being trafficked. In Namibia alone, I think last year they seized, it was like 49 live pangolin. Mm. So that's 49 pangolin that are alive that need to be released. Some need to go through rehabilitation. In, in fact, probably most do because they've been in a sack starving for who knows, up to weeks. And so I kind of said, well, you know, if we want to do research that's meaningful to help pangolin outside of what I'm already doing, we need to be following these pangolin and seeing are they even surviving after they're released? Mm -hmm. Because the minimal research that has been done shows that translocation and release is really stressful. And so I have done some releases of these pangolin. And like I said, as my role shifts a little bit, I'm getting a lot more involved with these trafficked pangolin, releasing them, monitoring them. It's a big section of the research that I'm starting now mm -hmm. is to look at what are the survival rates and what happens to them after they're released. But, but in general, uh, the same goes for Namibia as that UN report. In the past years, the highest number of cases registered for wildlife crimes in Namibia, it was pangolin over rhino horn and over ivory. Having said that, Namibia does have a pretty good program. Uh, they have a good intelligence program. And so the police and Ministry of Environment and Tourism handle arrests and all of that type of thing. So I haven't come across it, but in general, there's not necessarily a reason I would have. Mm. And uh, at the moment, we don't know the scale of local trade, but I don't think it's as bad as some other countries. Namibia has protected the pangolin within Namibia as highly as the rhino and elephant. Mm. So it could be the same sentence to have a pangolin or scales as having rhino horn. And the awareness on the severity of a sentence is still getting there but people are realizing more and more that it is a serious crime and this is something that only changed you know in the last five years but there's a lot of positive changes coming for that. Would you say then the the main kind of way to to combat that would be to continue to raise this awareness of the the seriousness of this issue? Yeah so we do have some plans to to raise more awareness get more posters out there and campaigns out there all a bit of a work in progress at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yes, I guess when you're dealing with something that is kind of one of these very important but perhaps underrepresented species, it's no matter how much you do, you're you're always going to want to do more. It's always going to be one of these things that kind of you're going to be working on and, and pushing for kind of more and more. Um, yeah. Earlier this year, we talked about some of the threats facing pangolin, trafficking being one of them. And then there was a couple others that we talked about. And so moving on to the others, one of them was fences, which I think a lot of people would kind of think, oh, what is an, an electric fence? It's there to protect animals, to keep them in, to keep perhaps poachers or 
negative forces out. I was wondering if you could explain to the, the audience that's listening why a, a, an electric fence is perhaps such an issue for, for a pangolin. Well, um, the pangolin actually walk on their back two feet mm -hmm. um, balanced with their tail. And so their whole underbody is soft tissue and a low line electric wire, they'll walk into it. And just if any of you have been shocked by anything, that electricity kind of grabs onto you. And so their immediate reaction is defense. And so that's to curl up into a ball and they wrap around that electric wire and it kills them. Maybe not the initial shock, but they get literally latched around it. Just for pangolin, but also all the other small mammals and reptiles, tortoise, monitor lizards, a lot of things like that die on these low lying electrical wires. There was a study done in South Africa by Darren Peterson and they found, I believe it was for every 12 kilometers of electric fence, one pangolin will die per year. That was about the estimate. So it's, it's actually considered one of the highest threats to pangolin in Southern Africa at the moment. Mm -hmm. Because in areas like Namibia and South Africa, there's so much farming and game farming going on, especially the small livestock and then prized game these farmers will install these high-tech, low-line electric fences to keep out jackals and things like that from taking the young. Mm. And so pangolin do get caught on that quite a bit. In general, I know there is some work being done at the moment with trying to come up with a kind of smart fence that deactivates and sends an alarm and things like that, but there's still a long way to go. Mm. I suppose in this in the short term, then, is there any kind of solutions or ways that this could be dealt with? Or is it one of these ones where you've got to try and just kind of wait and see what the what the research tells you a little bit later down the line? Uh, it's a bit difficult because, yeah, I mean, Okunjima used to have low line wire many, many years ago and they've come up. We've got a system here that works quite well, but small animals do get under and through the fence. So there will always be jackals and stuff getting through. No, no, like large carnivores, but I think even, even, you know, for farmers, a jackal will still take out a sheep or a goat. Yeah. So at the moment, it's a bit difficult uh, what people are willing to do. If people are willing to experiment with, you know, turning off the charge or turning the charge down, that could be helpful. But uh, if they're not willing to experiment, which I think most farmers their livestock and their game, that's their livelihood, and they can't really afford to experiment with losing those animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you're dealing with or trying to kind of talk to farmers or trying to get them to, or the people who have the fences up, is it hard to kind of sell? The, the, do people, when you go out and talk to them, do they know what a pangolin is? Would they be happy to engage if you said, oh, a pangolin is going to come along? Or would they always kind of brush that aside and say, no, we need to prioritize our livestock and our animals? Well, in general, I've had a very positive response across Namibia of people who want to talk about pangolin or help where they can. Uh, mm -hmm. But I haven't been specifically to these areas where the fencing is a problem, mm -hmm. um, which would be like the Kalahari area of Namibia and then all of these big game farms. And I think in general, everyone is not everyone even still knows what a pangolin is, but they're happy to help. But at the same time, unless there's a solution, they're not going to change their fence. Yeah. 
I guess kind of yeah it's and hard. it also took you know everything costs money so yes. uh I so yeah I guess money kind of yeah makes the world go round which can be a bit of a a tricky thing to kind of deal with when you're trying to when your priority is the kind of conservation of these animals um and everybody else has very different ones it can be quite a, a challenge I guess another and the kind of final major issue that we kind of talked about earlier this year was was climate change and how that's affecting pangolin um and I think climate change I think is the first thing people think of when they think of environmental damage and conservation and kind of the threats facing biodiversity worldwide I was wondering if you could explain how it directly affects pangolin yeah so I mean it's a very debatable or debated topic climate change but generally speaking, with climate change, we have more more droughts and the droughts have becoming a lot more serious and the weather in general has become a lot more extreme. Mm. And, you know, th these animals have adapted to these habitats with having a pretty, you know, similar climate over this whole time. And the species of pangolin that I work with, the Temminx ground pangolin, is the only species found in these arid regions of Africa. And they're not found with less than 250 millimeters of rainfall. And this is because, you know, they survive on eating only ants and termites. Mm -hmm. So when there's not enough rain in an area that used to have more than 250 millimeters of rainfall, that means there's not enough grass, there's not enough resources for those ants and termite populations to be doing well. So it can have a serious Im impact, negative impact on, on pangolin. In general, in Namibia, rainfall has been getting less and less, where there's, you know, basically zero rainfall towards the coastal desert regions. So there's a certain percentage of the land each year that's desertifying. As more of this land is desertifying, the rainfall gradient slightly shifts. If this climate change continues, we'll also start shifting across the nation. So if you look at a distribution map, Pangolin don't occur in all of Namibia, but they occur in all of Namibia where there's over 250 millimeters of rainfall. And as every year seems to, to be getting drier, thankfully this year uh, where I am in central Namibia, we had average rainfall. Last year was less than half of average. So it was less than 250 millimeters and we had over 50% of our population that was tagged die. Mm -hmm. So 50% of all pangolin I was researching died of starvation and malnutrition. And that's because there was not enough food for them. So as the rainfall is getting less and less, they're they're not gonna be able to survive in these really dry areas. If you can imagine, okay, that's a pretty serious impact on a population for, I, it's just the pangolin I had tagged. I don't know how many others died, but out of the group that I had tagged, 50% died. Mm -hmm. And it was um, a healthy number. So if you look at that, some of these areas still haven't recovered from the drought on the far western boundary of their range. So if you just use logic, very likely they won't be occurring in those areas anymore. They're going to be dying out. They have very defined home ranges, so it's not likely they're going to start shifting with the rainfall. They're likely going to become locally extinct in some of these very arid areas that used to have enough rainfall, but now they don't. Mm. Yeah, 
Climate change, I guess, is such a big issue that it's kind of hard to to give advice specifically for pangolin and how you can make a difference or how you can can change. But just hearing that story will hopefully next time people go to do things that are perhaps less environmentally friendly will will start to reconsider their um, their actions and perhaps act in a slightly more environmentally friendly way. Now that was earlier this year we talked about those major issues. I wondered kind of moving forward is there anything any threats to pangolin that you see as kind of emerging threats or things that are perhaps smaller now that might become a serious problem in the future? Um, you know, I mean, at the moment, of course, there's lots of di- like little different things that we don't know the impact just yet. You know, there's charcoal farms, some of the burning and things like that. We actually don't know the impact and uh, it could it could further impact pangolin. But at the moment, nothing has even really been like looked at or measured. Mm. But yeah. basically. No, it all comes down to, you know, land use. As shifting land use happens, there are always new emerging threats. So as new mines are put in and, you know, different agriculture, all these different things, they they, they are new threats. But mm. I can't say any specific off the top of my head. <laughs> That's okay. I guess the issue then is with the changing land use is when you then add the climate change factor on top of that, which is already shifting landscapes, and add all of yeah. these other things on top of it. Then you add the trafficking on top of that. Yes, it's kind of this adding layer upon layer upon layer upon things that are uh, an already very vulnerable species, given the the yeah. yeah the their status across the world. Is I think every species of pangolin is now at least vulnerable, if not more so. I wondered then, kind of going forward, you talked about your changing position. What are kind of the big questions you're looking to to answer now? Um, so I've been focusing a lot more on technology development because there hasn't been any reliable technology to track trafficked released pangolin. Mm. They have a tendency to walk long distances, so they don't stay in an area which makes VHF telemetry nearly impossible, uh, infeasible. Because there is, you know, such a diverse landscape, not every piece of land I'm allowed to access. Mm. It could be a private farmer, a communal area, it could be government land, and uh, all of that takes time and permission, and you won't always get permission. Mm. So I've been working a lot on developing a small but efficient and reliable transmitter to track these pangolin. And looking at things in the big picture, I'm actually hoping to do a lot more, but I've already started a lot. Can't talk about too much now because it's all still in the works. Um, But some of the objectives include raising more awareness in the communities, as well as employing more locals to protect pangolin. Um, So I'm building sites across Namibia so we can understand their ecology in the different landscape, the different habitats. Uh, what has been found is it seems they do have varied ecology across the different habitats because there's different species available, there's different burrows available. Just for an example, like the Kalahari of South Africa found that they have a mating system of basically one male to one female. 
whereas Zimbabwe found and what we're finding is a polygynous mating system. And so understanding all of this helps us understand how we can better protect and conserve the species. You know, when we release a pangolin, can it integrate into that system? If it's a female, is there room for her? Or is there, is she not going to have a chance? You know, who's going to, where will they have the best chance of survival? So some of those questions we're still trying to answer. So um, the idea is to also, you know, empower and build capacity with locals. So I'll be doing some training with first responders, things like that. So people have a better idea of what a pangolin is because these people could seize a pangolin and they've never seen one before in their whole life. You know, the police maybe never have seen one. So how should they handle it? How should they behave around it? Because as I said, they don't show stress in a way that most people interpret stress. They roll tightly into a ball and then people think, oh, they're fine. Um, so just really spreading awareness and education while further protecting them. So additionally, you know, I guess this isn't questions, it's more like objectives, but we're also looking at, like I said, understanding the overall ecology and different priority habitat sites. And we're busy writing guidelines and a management plan for pangolin within Namibia. That's really interesting. I think, I don't know why I'd never made the connection before, but it, it makes total sense that since they are such a hard species to find and a hard species to locate and see and very few people have the experience of kind of encountering them. In my mind, police officers and enforcement would be perfectly aware of what a pangolin was and they would have seen hundreds of pangolins right there, but obviously that is just kind of my bias coming in because I am dealt with that. But that's so interesting to hear that you kind of are encountering that as a, an issue when the statistics would show it's such a, a huge issue that you would expect everybody to be aware of it. I guess another thing is kind of when you were talking about the community engagement and getting them kind of involved more. I really like that idea because I suppose it teaches people that the value of these animals is perhaps more so when they're alive and more they are incredibly valuable while they're, they're there rather than just seeing perhaps the, the numbers surrounding trafficking and assuming that must be the most fruitful use of the, the animal. So that's very interesting to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to add, so like one of the things that's quite interesting is, you know, I've talked to some local people and asked them, you know, what do you know about pangolin, anything? And, you know, most of these people livelihoods are their livestock, which eat obviously organic material, grasses and plants. They don't ever think, you know, that pangolin are helping provide more food for their animals. But if you get local people in that are passionate about it and protecting the pangolin, it's going to have a much higher impact for the locals to really understand the importance of pangolin because they eat so many ants and termites, which harvest that grass. It, it's actually, in fact, providing more food for their livestock. And I think there's such little meat on a pangolin because before the trafficking was a, a thing in Namibia, you know, they were eaten for sustenance and there's also some spiritual and medical uses. But I think if those people knew, oh, they're killing this pangolin for meat, but it was actually, you know, helping provide more food for the, the livestock, they would be, you know, much less inclined to poach and whatnot. Mm. I, you kind of touched on an, an idea there that I just wanted to kind of go into slightly, because I think I've 
when doing some recent background research, I've found a, a lot of kind of information perhaps from other areas, from um, Tanzania and Uganda, about the cultural impact um, of pangolin. Um, just kind of go off track slightly, because it kind of is very interesting to me, the kind of cultural value. Do people have kind of a a connection to these animals? I know in some places they're seen as a charm of good luck or they bring good omens. Is it kind of a similar story in, in Namibia as well? Yeah, Namibia has a lot of different tribes or cultural groups and they all kind of have their own view on it. There's, yeah, there's some that believe pangolin have medicinal purposes that, mm. you know, that it can cure anything. Some of the people believe that a scale is good luck. Mm-hmm. So seeing the pangolin is not good luck, but having a scale is like a, you know, lucky rabbit's foot or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have also heard there was a woman that, uh, she was a local woman and I took her out to see a pangolin and she was terrified. I've actually had a, a lot of local people be terrified that the pangolin can attack them. And I guess in their culture, growing they're told this pangolin is a very bad omen. Mm-hmm. It's like an evil spirit, and it brings drought and misfortune. And um, her growing up was basically, it's actually, if you look at it scientifically, the pangolin do not cope well with drought. They can't regulate their body temperature well with drought, so they come out during the daytime, and often when there's drought, there's not much grass. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we were in drought last year. There was absolutely no grass. Across Namibia, it looked like a desert. So the sightings of pangolin were up really high. And so actually, as a result of the drought, we see a lot of pangolin. But the local people thought, we see pangolin, they brought the drought. You know, kind of this, um, you know, this logic from uh, traditional stories and things. Oh, this year of the drought, there was a lot of pangolin and they brought it with them. And so there's a lot of different views and different beliefs uh, within Namibia, mm-hmm. and they also, you know, in in areas where people are living in poverty, they're also a means of, you know, sustenance. They're just eaten for food. Mm-hmm. But I think Namibia is not having as bad a problem as what's happening in um, Central and West Africa. That's really, really interesting to me, actually. I really kind of like to hear about the the different aspects. I've been talking to a lot of people. So I talked to somebody from Hong Kong about their experience with kind of pangolin and whether they'd kind of seen or experienced any of traditional uses in in Asia. And so it's kind of interesting to see how these different perspectives from around the world view the pangolin and in very similar ways, even though they are very removed from one another, like the traditional medicine use and things. And I guess it all comes back to the the community engagement and kind of perhaps giving people the tools to see, oh, maybe your cultural beliefs are your beliefs. You can believe you're entitled to believe in whatever you believe in. But these are the tools. So if you want to go out and kind of see, you can go out and see and kind of change your perception or leave as is. It's kind of an, an interesting thing to to look into. I guess my final question would be then we've talked about how engaging communities in Namibia is important but I guess the final point I wanted to to ask you about would be if somebody listening to this interview thinks oh well I'm I'm not in Namibia what can I do to help or is there something I can do to 
perhaps educate myself or help in some kind of way the cause for the pangolin what would you say to them what would you want them to take away and kind of think about or or act upon well i i've actually been asked this a few times and there's a handful of things that people can do without having to really try to do much so one of those things, as we mentioned, was, you know, with the climate change, the only thing that can combat that is for us to accept that it's there and take action in our daily lifestyles to reduce our impact on the environment. And that's not just for pangolin, that's for all wildlife and for our Earth to reduce our, our impact on Earth, reduce our pollution, try and live more cleanly, you know. A good saying is, you know, like the slow and steady wins the race. It's not about making major lifestyle changes, but about making small lifestyle changes that you'll keep up for your whole life. So rather than trying to do something that's maybe not sustainable for you, that's a huge change that you'll only do for a month. It's not going to be that worthwhile. But if you can make small changes that you will be able to keep doing the rest of your life, that's going to be a lot more valuable. I think one big thing in my mind, and this this is just a personal opinion, is like business travel, especially now in the times of COVID-19, we're able to do so much virtually. And I think, you know, going forward, people need to think when traveling for business, is it really necessary to hop on a jet and fly across the world? Because if you look at how beautiful some of these environments have cleaned up in such a short period of time because we have so few planes flying and so few cars driving that it's actually, you know, for the sake of things, driving less and flying less has been great for the environment. So whatever people can do there is, I mean, it's that's for the whole everything, Mother Nature and all species. Um, but pangolin in particular, I think awareness is such a huge thing. So many people... Like, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but, you know, some people are even afraid of pangolin because they don't know what it is. And I've heard of pangolin being shot in villages because they were scared of this creature. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, people abroad, if you can share stories and share information, you know, if you follow a good conservation page or whatever, you know, keep sharing that information and keep raising awareness um, about it. And of course, like obviously fundraisers are always good, but always look into look into it deeply because a lot of fundraisers, the money doesn't go where it should necessarily go. But I think spreading awareness and education is so important. I think that's a, a really inspirational message to leave leave on there. All that kind of remains is for me to say a very big thank you for your, your time today. Thank you very much for, for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
Welcome back. It really is amazing to think that the survival of the pangolin really rests on each and every one of us, and we can all make choices that help limit the threats that they face. If we all contribute, we really can make a difference. Additionally, while speaking of interconnectedness and the globalised nature of these threats, it's worthwhile highlighting that the ideas that Kelsey touched upon are not exclusive to Namibia. For example, when we talk about habitat degradation and changing landscapes, this is seen around the world. On mainland China, around 50% of pangolin habitats have been destroyed. In Hong Kong, human developments are cited as being a major threat to larger mammals. And in Western Africa, changing land use is attributed with causing the giant pangolin and white-bellied pangolin to become endangered. So these threats really shouldn't be underestimated. Also worth briefly noting is that last week, Morgan said there wasn't much cultural knowledge in Namibia about the pangolin. But Kelsey today has completely contradicted that with her experiences. I guess what this highlights is that the work of people like Kelsey and Morgan is essential because as is clear, there is still a huge number of uncertainties surrounding the pangolin. With that being said, having established climate change, altering landscapes and trafficking as the biggest threats to pangolin, on next week's show, we're going to dive deeper into one of these issues, that being trafficking. We will be joined by Dr. Chris Lusk, who is the Executive Director of CAPTRIF, the Consortium for Anti-Trafficking Research in Scotland. She's going to be telling us a little bit more about trafficking and her work, as well as telling us about why she thinks collaboration is key to solving one of the core issues associated with pangolin. However, all that remains for today is to wrap up the show. So. Thank you once again to Kelsey, and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>